Today's reading is Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. These are the words of our Lord. Amen. Good morning. morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I am Kellen Reed. I'm usually leading the musical part of the services each weekend. So today, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to sing the entire sermon. So... You know, they took me up on it last night and my voice was worn out. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. So, <laughs> so what I am going to do is actually walk us through Psalm 95. That's what we're going to do today. And I am humbled and privileged to be able to do that with you. Uh, we're going to take a look at Psalm 95 in the context of congregational worship, what true worship is, and hearing the voice of God in that. So, Let's start with some background on the Psalms. Many of you already know this, but Psalms are incredibly valuable to believers in Christ. We should attempt to become as familiar with them as possible. After all, Scripture does command us to utilize them in Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, and James 5.13. The Psalms are capable of serving as a Christian's hymnal to assist us with praise, a Christian's prayer book to learn how to pray, the Christian's book of evidences to strengthen our faith, and then it can also be a training guide to living a holy and righteous life. So before we get started, uh, let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, as we begin to read and work through your perfect, fully sufficient and complete word, I ask that you soften our hearts and open our minds. Help us to savor the words that you've spoken. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So take a look at your notes. Uh, you can see the thesis statement that we have today, and it goes, We, the church, or believers in Christ, are called to come together in God's presence to sing His praises with thanksgiving, reverence, and joy. Congregational singing isn't part of our liturgy or order of service because it's popular in the modern church. God's Word clearly indicates who, how, why we should sing as part of our regular gatherings. So, as we read the text this morning, you're probably thinking this is written to somebody. There is an audience of this psalm. So how many of you thought it was God's people or the Israelites at the time? That would have been the correct answer. Uh, it is also to us. Because if you think about the overarching story or overarching story, whatever 
the right phrases there, of the Bible, we have creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We're in redemption right now, so we are God's people. And I'll explain more about that in a second, but it is also to us. Psalm 95 is a worship leader's call to worship to the congregation. So let's dive in a little deeper on who are God's people. I think Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 answers that question very well. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we have the cornerstone, that is Christ Jesus. On top of that, it's the apostles and the prophets, and then it's us. We are the structure, the temple, the dwelling place for God. Talk about finding your purpose in life right there. That's it. Dwelling place for God. The church isn't made up of anyone who happens to be in the building on Sunday morning. It's the people God has joined together in a specific locality through the blood of his son and the power of his spirit. That was from Bob Coughlin in his book, Worship Matters. And I think he, he hits the nail on the head there. So it's a specific place. We're talking Desert Breeze, North Phoenix, Arizona, United States, planet Earth. Specific place. But then it's not just anybody who happens to be under the roof. It's not just anybody that walks in the doors necessarily. It's the people that God has joined together with the blood of his son and the power of the Holy Spirit. So... The question is, who are God's people? That would be us. We're believers in Christ. You and me, we are built on the cornerstone that is Christ Jesus, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and joined together as a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So then, what are God's people supposed to do? This is your first fill in the blank. Come together and enter his presence. So I'm going to read the verses again, specifically 1, 2, and 6 of uh, Psalm 95, and it says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So what are God's people supposed to do? We're definitely supposed to come together. And This actually appears to be a process, if you look at the Hebrew, uh, for each one of those words. It's the same English word come three times, but it's three different meanings in the Hebrew. So the first one, in verse 1, is go, walk, or come. So point A to point B. The second one is to meet, to come or be in front, confront or go before. And then the third one is to go in, enter or come in. And my interpretation of this process would be the first one is describing travel, like I said, point A to point B. So that's you going from your house to the church, going from from house to desert breeze. Second one is more of an anticipation. That's where we're coming in and we're, we're finding our seat. Hopefully nobody sat in your seat this week or nobody parked in your space outside. If they did, forgive them. It's okay. Uh, but this is where we're, we're getting inside the building and we're getting ready, getting ready to do something. And then the third one is entering in. That's where we're starting to block out 
the stuff on the outside, and we're getting ready to enter God's presence. We're forgetting about the fight we had with our kids or our spouse. We are forgetting about that jerk that cut us off on the way in, and we're ignoring all that, and we're getting ready to worship God. That's the third one. So many of you know this scripture uh, definitely supports the uh, fact that we should continually gather, we should regularly gather as believers in Christ. It's Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have to meet as God's church. That is not an option. We are one body. We are the bride of Christ. We are not scattered. That's not the design. So we have to regularly meet. And in that, we are going to be singing the word, preaching the word, praying the word, and being built up and edified for God. Growing as one family. And on that same note, uh, I actually have a reference to Matthew 18, 20 on your notes. Go ahead and cross that out and change that to uh, James 4, 8. That was more of what I was going for here. So one of the results of genuine worship is that God draws near to us. And James 4, 8, the first half of it, I think, describes that very well. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I, I don't know who... The original person is that, that said this. I know Ray has said this a few times, but I have the phrase stuck in my head. And it is, you are as close to God right now as you want to be. I believe that to be 100% true. And I know that for myself, anytime there was distance between me and God, there was one person responsible for that. That was me. It's never God creating the distance. It's me. So you are as close to God as you want to be. And I think that that ties into the second and third instances of the word come in this passage because we're talking about getting together and then entering his presence. You're as close to his presence as you want to be. We have an example of this in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. The temple of God was just completed and the people began to praise him and God actually made himself known in their presence. So, 2 Chronicles 5, 13 through 14 says, And it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Just Picture that for a second. They couldn't stand because of the presence of God. And I know this is only one incident, but it doesn't seem wrong to think that if God is pleased with the praises we offer, he would do the same today. Even more so when you consider the fact that when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, the curtain separating us from the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. And we can be with him, his presence. And we have the Holy Spirit inside. So, I think that's reasonable. <laughs> Your next fill in the blank. What are God's people supposed to do? Come together and enter his presence with thanksgiving. 
Verse 2 says, Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. This verse paints a picture of very thankful people, and we should absolutely be thankful as Christians. We have the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We know how awesome and amazing God the Father is. We should be the most thankful people on the planet. I'm going to take you back to the Old Testament again for another example. Hopefully most of us know the story of Daniel and the lion's den. If not, I got you covered. I'm going to give you a summary right here. So, Daniel was a high official for King Darius while the Jews were in exile in Babylon, and the satraps, that's my pronunciation, may or may not be right, or men who collected the royal tribute reported to him. So we have men and money and power, and of course, that is going to lead to corruption because that's what happens. So these satraps did not like Daniel. They had a disdain for him because he was distinguished from the others with an excellent spirit. That does not mean he was perfect or sinless. That just means he had a level of righteousness that was obvious and stood out to them. So they convinced King Darius to create an injunction saying that if anybody worships anyone but King Darius for 30 days, they'd be thrown into the lion's den. And then this is what happens in Daniel 6.10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He knew what was going to happen. He knew his destiny was lion's den. And he still did the same thing. He prayed and he thanked God because he knew the glory of God and what he had in him was so far above anything that he might face, including the lion's den. So how much more should we be thankful than Daniel? I don't remember the last time somebody got thrown in a lion's den here in Phoenix. <laughs> I don't even know where it is. So what else are God's people supposed to do? Come together with, and enter his presence with thanksgiving and joy. That's your next fill in the blank. Joy. Joy and thanksgiving are natural reactions to the overwhelming goodness of God. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. But it, we don't stop there. Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're part of God's family. We're part of God's family. I have a few family members that I don't claim. I'm not proud that they're my family. But I'm proud of this family. I am absolutely proud of this family. No better one to be in. Joy and thanksgiving are natural reactions to the overwhelming goodness of God. So what else are God's people supposed to do? Come together and enter his presence with thanksgiving, joy, and reverence. That's your next fill in the blank. Reverence. So reverence is a natural reaction to the overwhelming greatness 
of God. Solomon had just finished building the temple in Jerusalem, and the ark has been returned. And in 2 Chronicles 6.13, it says, Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. Things are going pretty good for King Solomon right here. They just finished this amazing temple. They've got the ark back. All the assembly is around him. Great time for him to start thinking very highly of himself and think that he's all that. But he doesn't do that. He gets on his knees and raises his hands towards heaven because he realizes that all the glory should go to God. It's not for him. It's for God because he knows God. He knows who he is. The Apostle Paul describes the humility of Christ and how he emptied himself of glory, took on flesh, and died a humiliating death on the cross, but is now exalted the name above every name. Philippians 2.10 says, So that every, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Reverence is the natural reaction to God's holiness, greatness, omnipotence, and power. Take, for example, Isaiah's reaction to his vision of the Lord. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's Isaiah 6.5. Simon Peter, similar reaction. They were fishing all night, caught nothing. Jesus tells them, throw down the nets one more time. They bring up a bounty of fish. Simon Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's Luke 5.8. He immediately knew. He was in the presence of the Most High God. That's our reaction when we experience that because we're like, you're God and I am very much not. <laughs> yeah. Reverence is a natural reaction to the overwhelming greatness of God. So what else are God's people supposed to do? Well, we are supposed to sing to the Lord. That is your next fill in the blank. Singing is incredibly powerful. Congregational singing even more so. It's one of the few activities that pretty much all of us can participate in. How many of us, if we're talking about just singing in general, how many of you can remember song lyrics from years ago? I think that's pretty, pretty evident with most people, but how many of you can remember something that somebody said to you like 10 minutes ago? I know I can't. And if it's yesterday, I've slept since then, so... No, no way that's happening. But if I hear a song and I hear that music going, it's like, bang, I know what's coming next. I know what to sing. So there's something about music. We teach children through song. It requires an emotional investment. There's rhyming. There's engagement in multiple senses. It just sticks with us. So congregational singing can help us hold on to biblical truths. How great is it if we have scripture infused into the songs that we sing? We can remember scripture that much better. It requires an emotional investment. It's something that pretty much everybody can do. You don't have to stand for it. You can be sitting and you can still sing. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5.19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And then in James 5.13, it says, is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise or psalms. 
So the next question is, what else are we supposed to do? That answer, and your next fill in the blank, is worship. Worship, bless, and bow down. So verse 6 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And uh, kneel there in the original Hebrew is actually bless. Like, bless the Lord, O my soul. Oh, my soul, right? You guys all heard that song, didn't you? That's, that's going back to my last point there. So, we've, we've discussed how we worship now. Let's talk about why we worship. God should receive worship because he is the rock of our salvation. What else do you need than that right there? He is the rock of our salvation. That is your next fill in the blank. The one after that, God is greater than anything else in all creation. So verse 1 says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. British evangelist Rico Tice said, It's not only the individual Christian believer who is to let their light shine, a narrow beam of torchlight in the world, Each local church is to be a lighthouse, a great wide beam of gospel light illuminating the darkness. So he's kind of painting a picture that uh, in addition to glorifying God, our praises are actually a witness to the unbeliever. Tim Keller says in Songs of Jesus, Glorious worship is exuberant, never half-hearted. It is attractive, not off-putting. It is awesome, never sentimental. It is brilliant, not careless. It points to God, not the speaker's. There is nothing more evangelistic, nothing that will win the world more than glorious worship. And if you weren't convinced, I have another one for you. (laughs) Keith and Kristen Getty in their book Sing say, When we sing, we witness to the people in our church who are yet to believe. To the unsaved spouse, to the cynical teen, to the intrigued friend. We witness to the outsider stepping through the door of a church, and even through the sounds that we make, to the outsider walking past the door of the church. The sight and sound of a congregation singing praises to God together is a radical witness in a culture that rejects God and embraces individualism. Our songs are the public manifesto of what we believe. Amen. Maybe you've heard the phrase, we sing our theology. I think that's definitely true here. So you guys know that we are all worshipers, right? We're designed to worship. It's just the who or what that changes for most of us. So my wife and I uh, recently started to eat healthier. She's so good to me. She's been preparing things for me to take to work uh, and eat instead of like grabbing a bag of chips or something like that. Uh, She calls them bags of veggies and I call them bags of depression. (laughs) Because I really don't like them. (laughs) So... (laughs) There is no chance of me worshiping these bags of veggies. (laughs) But in contrast, we celebrated our anniversary recently when we went to a restaurant, a steakhouse here in town, and I had a New York strip steak that was perfectly cooked. It was so good. And lobster mac and cheese. Oh, man, that was amazing. But the worship shouldn't stop there. Because God is the one that gave me the taste buds that I can enjoy that food with. And man, I did enjoy it, I'll tell you. 
But all that steak and lobster mac and cheese is a pointer to him. It's a signpost to him because he's the one of ultimate glory. He's the one that gave us those things that we can enjoy them. So it can't stop there. Why else should God receive worship? Your next fill in the blank is because he is majestic. The wow comes before the worship. I was able to take my family on vacation to Yellowstone National Park earlier this year. How many of you have been there? A few of you, yeah. So you're going to know what I'm talking about here. Uh, before we went, people would say, hey, where are you going on vacation? Oh, I'm going to Yellowstone. I, I hope it should be fun. I've never been there, but I hope it's fun. And then we went, and we were driving through, coming into the park, and there's just rows of magnificent pine trees on both sides, endless. And then you come around a corner, and there's the Madison River chugging along. Huge river, beautiful. And then we went farther into the park, and there's Yellowstone Lake. Breathtaking. Blew me away. Then the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone. Amazing. Awesome. And then the Yellowstone River and all the wildlife. And when I got back and people asked me how it was, I was like, it was amazing. You got to go. It's so beautiful. You could never say that there wasn't a God because it was that marvelous. Only a more glorious God could give us something like that to appreciate. But the point is, is the wow comes before the worship. So you can't worship God if you don't know him and know about him either. You have to know his glory and his beauty, and then you can worship him. And as good as a steak is, or as beautiful as Yellowstone National Park might be, they are nothing in comparison to the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 21 through 23 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Don't give the creator up for something in creation. God is better by far. Anything that we experience here on this planet is just a dim glimpse and a pointer to him in all of his glory. He is our ultimate joy and satisfaction. So why else should God receive worship? Well, because he is our maker. That's your next fill in the blank. Maker. Psalm 95, verse 5 and 6 say, The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And the word maker in verse 6 is actually the same Hebrew word in verse 5 that uh, in English is formed. So we're talking about God meticulously crafting all of creation, and that includes us. And if we go down that road a little bit farther, Psalm 139, 13 through 14 is a great example. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. If there were ever a couple of verses to meditate on, right there, that's them. And then if you add the gospel in there, it's good stuff. 
So, another reason God should receive worship, because we are his people. That's your next fill in the blank. Verse 7 says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5 say, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Keith and Kristen Getty in their book Sing say, When we sing together as a church, we are showing how we are a congregation of living stones. Our singing is an audible expression of the bonds we share testifying to the life that lies within these stones. We are cut from the same elements of faith, united in one Lord, filled by one spirit, brought into one church to offer praise to him. We are being chiseled and refined through our singing just as we are through every aspect of our lives. We are forged together through our singing together. So I'm going to continue on with a little bit more from them in a second, but before I do, I just want you to know that this may be challenging to some of you, what I'm about to say, and just know that my heart for the church is that we would come together as one, and we would sing God's glorious praises together like he designed us to, knowing his salvation and just how beautiful he is. So, Keith and Kristen Getty go on to say a little bit later, listening to each other mumbling quietly along as a band performs brilliantly on stage in a church building is not the same as singing together as a congregation. The medieval church made the error of treating the Lord's Supper as something for the congregation to watch as the professionals at the front participated. Might we not be in danger of doing the same with our music today? So think about that for a second. How weird and ridiculous would it be if all the pastors up here took communion while the rest of us sat out there and watched? Like, oh, they really did good at communion today. That just sounds silly, right? But we, we can get into that role with the music. This is not a performance. You can go find performances that are way better somewhere else, okay? This is not a performance. We, as a congregation, are supposed to be singing together as one. It's just that some of us happen to have microphones and guitars. That's the difference. It's one congregation, though. So, we'll move on to the next section here. Hearing God through true worship and what is true worship. Your next fill in the blank is, it's in spirit and truth. We just went through an entire series on the Gospel of John. And uh, in chapter 4, Jesus is speaking with the woman at the well. And he says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's John 4, 21 through 25. So this is not just worship with our bodies. We're not just singing with our mouths. We are worshiping with our spirits as well founded in the truth of the gospel. So we can affirm biblical doctrines, we can have the most correct theology, we can follow all the rules, 
But if we don't ever experience God in our inner being, it's not worship. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees in the book of Matthew because they've made void the word of God and ignored the intention of the law for their own traditions. He used the words of the prophet Isaiah, and he said this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. That's Matthew 15, 8 through 9. And then another verse to really build out this idea. It's actually one of my favorites because the first time I read it, it just it hit me right in the heart. And it's Hosea 6, 6. It says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I'm going to tell you something. I want you to hear this. This goes for me too. God does not want our empty actions. It's not what he wants. He wants our heart. And that leads us into the next point. It involves our whole being, head, heart, and will. Will. That's your next fill in the blank. 1 Corinthians 14, 13 through 15 says, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise, sing with my mind also. So we sing songs here at Desert Breeze that are theologically rich and lyrically deep. Uh, quite frankly, some of them are kind of hard to understand sometimes because they're written a couple hundred years ago. You kind of read it four or five times like, oh, that's what he's saying. Okay. We also sing songs that are emotionally deep and personal. So we have this balance of theologically deep and emotionally deep, and it creates a great blend of head and heart. Timothy Keller says, Worship is ascribing ultimate worth to God in such a way that it engages and energizes your whole person with your mind, emotions, and will. Every time we come together to worship, we should be focusing our complete attention on God with our mind, expressing full emotion to God, and using our actions for God, will. So about 20 years ago, I attended a charismatic event, and I walked in, and it was, it was pretty rowdy, even like right when I got there. I mean, people were clapping, they were lifting their hands, they're jumping, they're stomping their feet, they're dancing around, the band was going nuts. It was crazy, screaming out. And Centennial High School beat Peoria by 50 points that day in football. <laughs> but it's not uncomfortable for us to think about that, right? At football games, everybody should be acting out and saying, yeah, go sports team, all right. That's perfectly normal. But if somebody down the road starts singing too loud, we give them the side eye and we're like, hey guy, calm down. What are you doing? Here at the church, as a congregation, we'd be, we should be singing as one with our hearts out, just singing to God and praising his glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. It should feel like the energy at a football game, but better because God is here. So the next point on your notes is true worship is the way we live our lives. That's the next fill in the blank. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, So whatever 
Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3:16 and 17 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I know we've we basically filled out all your blanks, but hang with me for a minute here. We've got a couple more things to talk about. So, there might be some scenarios in which you don't feel like worshiping, right? I know that I've come through the doors a few times and like, God, I just don't have it today. I don't got it. I'm not worthy. I, I just don't know that I can sing to you today. For whatever reason. But we'll go through some of these. So, let's say that you had a fight with a spouse or kids or a good friend and you don't feel like worshiping. But if you would just press in and sing to God, you would find peace and harmony in his love and mercy. Let's say you had a tough week at work. If you would just dive in and worship God, you would find rest, comfort, and assurance in his power and sovereignty. Maybe you've had a personal tragedy or loss. You can find healing and hope in his promises and goodness. Have you fallen into an old sin? Find forgiveness and mercy in the power of the cross and Jesus Christ crucified. Are you having doubts or struggling with your faith? Strengthen your faith while singing biblical truth and experiencing more of his presence. Or maybe you're self-conscious about the way you sing. Find courage and boldness to sing loudly because God hears it through the work of Jesus Christ. When we worship, God meets with us and directly ministers to us. He'll strengthen our faith, increase our awareness of his presence, and grant refreshment to our spirit and soul. Come into his arms and sing your heart out. If you've been running away, run back and come to him and sing to him. So how do we touch the Father's heart? Our singing isn't acceptable to God because of our skill. Our singing is acceptable to God because it flows through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and is made perfect through him. As we gather each week in his presence, we can touch God's heart by singing his glorious praises with joy, thanksgiving, adoration, and awe because of the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for our sin and gives us right standing with God if we believe in him, his life, death, and resurrection. Amen. I'd like to thank you all for coming today. If you have any questions about the sermon, I will be up here at, uh, at the end here. And any available elders will be here to pray with you if you need prayer. If you're new, I'd love to meet you. Uh, next week, we will be teaching on how to recognize God's voice using 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all our praise because you are the rock of our salvation. You are greater than anything in all creation. You're majestic and you're our maker. Not just those reasons, but so, so many more. God, help us to draw close to you throughout the week as we leave this place today and give us a clear and overwhelming sense of your grace and mercy each morning. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray and we all said... Amen. Amen.
Have a great week.